Chapter twenty two of Clinical Medicine for Nurses by Paul H. Ringer, AB, MD. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Chapter twenty two Tuberculosis. Tuberculosis is an infectious disease caused by the tubercle bacillus. It is the most widespread and the most frequent serious disease of the human race one death in seven from all causes being due to it tuberculosis may attack any and every portion of the body certain organs and structures such as the lungs lymphatic glands and joints being particularly susceptible no matter what organ or structure is attacked the fundamental cause is one and the same the bacillus of tuberculosis and the pathological process is also the same Tuberculosis of the glands, joints, bones, etc., are known as cases of surgical tuberculosis. These conditions will not be considered. In this chapter will be taken up what might be termed medical tuberculosis, i.e. tuberculosis of the lungs, and the most frequent tuberculosis complications of a medical nature that are met with. Historical note. Pulmonary tuberculosis has been known to man from the most remote times. Babylonian records, the most ancient known, make mention of it. Hippocrates, B.C. 460-376, gives an intelligent description of the disease. Aristotle, a contemporary of Hippocrates, notes that it was a general belief among the Greeks that phthisis, or consumption, was contagious no advance was made with regard to the nature of the disease for fourteen hundred years when anatomical study began sylvius sixteen ninety five first indicated the connection between tuberculosis nodules and phthisis morton sixteen eighty nine brought the tubercle prominently to attention as the true cause of phthisis stark seventeen eighty five accurately described miliary tubercles and paved the way for the correct understanding of their nature and relation to phthisis bale eighteen o three studied miliary tubercles in all stages stressed the importance of differentiating young from old tubercles by differences in their opacity and claimed that true tuberculosis is a constitutional affection which can cause development of nodules in all organs and not originate in inflammation although often complicated with it quote eighteen nineteen whose work soon followed bale's consummated and simplified the knowledge thus far gained he recognized the unity of all phthisis as tuberculosis and scrofula as tuberculosis of lymph glands his ideas in general as to causation and infection were distinctly modern and his description of the tubercle and its transformation toward ulceration are unexcelled most valuable of all was his gift of the art of auscultation no genius like that of lanek so far anticipated his own day Unquote. baldwin in december eighteen sixty five Villemin presented his paper on the cause and nature of tuberculosis 
and the inoculation of the same from man to rabbit. His conclusions were as follows. Quote, 1. Tuberculosis is a specific affection. 2. It has its origin in an inoculable agent. 3. The inoculation from man to rabbit is very successful. 4. Tuberculosis pertains, therefore, to the virulent diseases and should be classed with variola, scarlatina, syphilis, or, better still, with glanders. Unquote. Villeman employed many different elements for his inoculation experiments, among them being fragments of lung tubercle, sputum, blood, tuberculous glands, tubercle from cattle, bovine tubercle, and obtained positive results, i.e., development of tuberculosis in the rabbit, in almost all cases. Finally, in 1882, Robert Koch, health officer in an obscure German town, discovered the tubercle bacillus, and proved conclusively that it was the sole cause of any and every form of tuberculosis. Etiology. The sole cause of tuberculosis is the tubercle bacillus. It belongs to the vegetable kingdom, and when seen in stained preparations, appears as a small, straight, or slightly curved red rod. The tubercle bacillus requires the presence of oxygen in order to develop. It grows best at body temperature, 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit or 37 degrees Celsius. Temperatures below 30 degrees Celsius or above 42 degrees Celsius markedly lessen its growth. Direct sunlight kills the germ in a few hours. 5% carbolic acid kills it in a few minutes. But when the bacillus is embedded in sputum, five or six hours are often necessary to kill all the organisms. Modes of Infection It is now the opinion of most authorities that infection with the tubercle bacillus takes place in childhood, usually before the tenth year. The bacilli may gain entrance into the body by two routes. 1. Inhalation being breathed in with the air. 2. Ingestion, being taken into the intestinal tract with food. No matter how the bacillus finds an entrance, it quickly goes to lodge in the mesenteric lymph glands that lie at the back of the abdomen near the spine, or in the mediastinal or bronchial lymph glands situated in the chest around and between the roots of the lungs. In these glands, the tubercle bacilli may lie for years, and in fact for a lifetime, without causing any symptoms. If, however, for any reason, the resisting powers of the body are markedly lowered, the bacilli take advantage of this, and, by the action of their poisons, as well as of their bodies, gain the upper hand. They most frequently migrate to the lungs which are the organs in the body most susceptible to their inroads. Symptoms then make their appearance, and the individual becomes ill with tuberculosis. It is important to stress the difference between tuberculous infection and tuberculous disease. Every individual harboring tubercle bacilli in his body is the victim of tuberculous infection. 
It has been proven from countless autopsies in large general hospitals that, of individuals dying from all causes, over 85% showed signs of tuberculous infection. On the other hand, an individual is not the victim of tuberculous disease until symptoms appear that warrant a diagnosis of tuberculosis. Contributory Causative Factors 1. Heredity In the past, the influence of heredity was greatly overestimated. We now know that a child born tuberculous, the only way in which the disease can be really inherited, is so rare as to be a curiosity. Heredity, however, is not to be set aside, for it does pass on to the child a predisposition to infection with the tubercle bacillus and also a lack of resisting power to the bacillus when once infected consequently individuals in whose family history there is a marked tuberculous strain are far more likely to succumb to the disease than are those whose family tree is unscathed two environment Far more important in determining the outbreak of pulmonary tuberculosis are the environment and habits of the individual. These can best be considered under several subheadings. A. Dissipation. Wine, women, and song furnish a good soil for the development of tuberculosis. B. Lack of air in the home, the office, or the workshop. Tuberculosis is essentially a house disease and prolonged residence in badly ventilated quarters greatly lowers resistance c overwork d insufficient food e smoke and dust all lower bodily resistance f prolonged contact with tuberculous individuals that expectorate carelessly and promiscuously g lack of light and sunshine tubercle bacilli that have been expectorated grow and multiply best under these conditions pathology the tubercle no matter where the tubercle bacillus shows its activities the result is the same the tubercle to the naked eye the tubercle is a small pearly gray mass about the size of a pinhead tubercles in the affected area may be scattered and at a distance from each other or so close to one another as to leave no appreciable space between several tubercles may join together or coalesce while the young tubercle is pearly gray the older tubercles lose this color and become opaque and whitish in the center this occurs because the toxins of the tubercle bacillus act so as to block off the minute blood vessels going to the portion of the organ that is invaded, and thus the blood supply is cut off. In the absence of blood supply, there must, of course, be death of tissue. The tuberculous tissue undergoes a process known as caseous degeneration or cassation, i.e. a degeneration into a cheesy mass, having no definite structure. When this occurs in the lungs to any great extent, the cheesy, decayed matter is thrown off in the sputum, and a cavity is the result. 
the cavity being nature's attempt at safeguarding the body by getting rid of decayed tissue that is no longer of any use and leaving in its place a cavity or hole which nature again attempts to safeguard by weaving about it a capsule of dense fibrous tissue in order to wall it off types of tuberculosis acute general miliary tuberculosis this condition as the name implies consists in an invasion of the entire body by the tubercle bacillus it usually occurs when from some known or unsuspected focus of tuberculosis a large number of bacilli are set free at once in the bloodstream the body has no time to marshal its defensive resources and is overcome by the extent and intensity of the infection miliary tubercles are to be found scattered throughout the body in the lungs brain liver spleen and other organs symptoms these are vague as far as the possibility of diagnosis is concerned for there are practically none that point to tuberculosis the picture is one of intense general sepsis and at first is frequently mistaken for typhoid fever the temperature is irregular showing marked variations in one case seen by the writer the minimum in twenty four hours was ninety six degrees and the maximum one hundred and six degrees there are frequent chills and abundant sweats accompanied by rapid and profound emaciation the heart action is very rapid a hundred and twenty or more respiration is rapid usually above thirty to the minute and usually some cyanosis is present there is no leukocytosis this fact being an important element in diagnosis the course of the disease is rapidly progressive and the outcome invariably fatal there is no treatment that is of any avail pulmonary tuberculosis clinical varieties of pulmonary tuberculosis these are three in number one acute miliary tuberculosis of the lungs two acute tuberculosis galloping consumption three chronic tuberculosis one acute miliary tuberculosis of the lungs this form of tuberculosis occurs either one as a primary affection two as a result of dissemination from a pre-existing recognized or unsuspected focus of disease in the lung in either case a large number of bacilli are suddenly set free in the lesser pulmonary circulation so that the pulmonary tissue is bathed in blood rich in virulent tubercle bacilli the result is the formation at approximately one and the same time of an indefinite number of miliary tubercles throughout the lungs the tubercles are all young and have the characteristic pearly gray appearance upon touching a lung filled with miliary tubercles the sensation is exactly as though the lung were filled with birdshot symptoms these resemble very greatly those of acute general miliary tuberculosis and therefore will not be repeated stress must be laid however upon two symptoms one dyspnea two slight cyanosis which are practically the only ones that point to the lungs 
Most of these patients have no cough, and few of them show expectoration. This form of tuberculosis of the lungs is uniformly fatal. A few cases are cited where the disease has changed into a more chronic type, and where life has been somewhat prolonged, but as a rule, death ensues in from six weeks to three months. The treatment of this type of the disease differs in no way from the management of the ordinary bed case of chronic ulcerative pathysis, and consequently will not be dealt with separately. 2. Acute Tuberculosis In this type of pulmonary tuberculosis, an entire lobe of the lung is involved. The picture at first is almost exactly similar to that of acute lobar pneumonia, QV, and in fact can with difficulty be distinguished from that disease unless the patient is known to be tuberculous. There is the same high temperature, cough, sputum, pain in the side from pleurisy, dyspnea, and in very severe cases, cyanosis. Two points worthy of notice are that in acute pneumonia phthysis, the sputum is rarely rusty, and that there is no leukocytosis. The affected lobe of the lung is solid, consolidated, as in lobar pneumonia. As time goes on, however, the picture changes. The expected crisis does not occur. Instead, the temperature remains high, the patient becomes more and more toxic, the sputum becomes yellow, green, and mucopurulent, and if the tubercles in the lungs have had time to caseate and break down, tubercle bacilli may be found in the sputum. The course of the disease is either short or protracted. The writer has seen death occur within 14 days from the onset of the disease, but in many cases the acute stage is weathered, and the disease goes over into the type of subacute or chronic ulcerative pathysis with extensive cavity formation. In some cases, recovery ensues. Others that have been able to live through the most acute stage go on to a life of total or semi-invalidism for months or years. As in the case of acute miliary tuberculosis of the lungs, the management of these cases differs in no wise from that of bed cases of subacute or chronic ulcerative pathysis and will therefore not be dealt with here. 3. Chronic Tuberculosis This form of tuberculosis is by far the most common. It is divided into three classes. A. Incipient B. Moderately advanced C. Far advanced An entirely satisfactory classification of pulmonary tuberculosis has not yet been reached. Attempts have been made to classify the disease according to the amount of involvement found in the lungs and according to the symptoms presented by the patient. The best classification known to the writer is a combination of these two, which was adopted by the American Sanatoria Association in 1916. Though, strictly speaking, a classification of pulmonary tuberculosis has nothing to do with the duties of the trained nurse, this classification is given as it can, if carefully studied, give an insight into the many ways in which this disease may present itself. Lesions. Incipient. Slight 
infiltration limited to the apex of one or both lungs, or a small part of one lobe, no tuberculous complications. Moderately advanced, marked infiltration, more extensive than under incipient, with little or no evidence of cavity formation, no serious tuberculous complications. Far advanced, extensive localized infiltration or consolidation in one or more lobes, or disseminated areas of cavity formation, or serious tuberculous complications. Symptoms A. Slight or no constitutional symptoms, including particularly gastric or intestinal disturbance, or rapid loss of weight, slight elevation of temperature or acceleration of pulse at any time during the 24 hours, expectoration usually small in amount or absent, tubercle, bacilli, may be present or absent, B. Moderate. No marked impairment of function, either local or constitutional. C. Severe. Marked impairment of function, local and constitutional. This scheme is flexible in that it offers the following combinations. Incipient A. Moderately advanced A. Far advanced A. Incipient B. Moderately advanced B, far advanced B. Incipient C, moderately advanced C, far advanced C. Thus, combinations of the local conditions in the lungs and of the general symptoms can be obtained, which go far toward placing each individual case in its proper grouping. Symptoms A. Incipient. While the trained nurse will but very rarely be called upon to care for a case of really incipient tuberculosis. She should nevertheless be familiar with the symptoms of this condition, as it is only by spreading their characteristics and their importance throughout every community that the disease can never be stamped out. The symptoms of incipient pulmonary tuberculosis are vague and elusive. No one symptom is conclusive. All are but very rarely present, but the combination of any three or four are extremely suggestive. X. Not pointing to the lungs. 1. Fatigue, a loss of vigor and of ambition, a tired feeling out of proportion to the amount of work bringing it about and from which the patient does not promptly recover. 2. Rapid heart action over 85 to 90, especially early in the morning before arising. 3. Gradual and persistent loss of weight and strength. 4. Marked and unaccountable nervousness and irritability. 5. Loss of appetite and symptoms of indigestion. 6. Slight afternoon fever, 99 to 99.5 degrees, increased by moderate exertion, such as an hour's walk. Why? Pointing to the lungs. 7. Cough. Slight, dry hacking. Most noticeable in the early morning. 8. Sputum. Grayish white or light yellow. Slight in amount, usually not exceeding two teaspoonfuls in 24 hours. 9. Dyspnea. 
usually slight, transient, and only noticed after some mild physical exertion. 10. Hemotysis b. Moderately advanced. The difference in the symptoms of an incipient and of a moderately advanced case is usually one of degree only. The strength of the patient becomes so poor that work is abandoned. The pulse rate may or may not show a change. The weight is decidedly below par, and the emaciation of the patient becomes apparent. The temperature is more marked rising usually from 100 to 101 degrees in the afternoon and often registering 98.6 to 99 degrees in the morning. The cough becomes increasingly troublesome and often disturbs the patient's rest. It frequently assumes a looser and more hollow character and may come on in such paroxysms as to cause vomiting. The sputum becomes more profuse frequently reaching a total of two ounces in 24 hours, and though there are many exceptions to this rule, generally becomes yellow, mucopurulent, and tenacious. Tubercle bacilli are usually present in the sputum. Dyspnea is more marked on exertion and may even persist when the patient is at rest. Hemoptysis is more frequent than in the incipient stage and when it occurs is apt to be more profuse. Night sweats may put in their appearance, and tuberculous complications, especially tuberculosis of the larynx, are frequent. Disorders of digestion are more frequent and less tractable than in the incipient form. C. Far advanced. Here, again, the difference in symptoms between moderately advanced and far advanced cases is one of degree only. The weakness and emaciation become extreme, and the patient is often absolutely bedridden. The pulse is usually over 100 and weak. The appetite is bad, and digestion is poor, these patients being greatly distressed by the copious formation of gas in the intestines. The temperature may range from 99 to 103 degrees or more, or else may be typically septic in type, rising and falling with no reference to the time of day. Chills, especially in the morning, are frequent, and the nights are rendered hideous by the drenching sweats. Cough is severe, at times almost constant, deep, and hollow, and usually causes the patient to awaken a half dozen times during the night. The sputum is copious, from three to eight ounces in the twenty-four hours, yellow or yellow-green, tenacious, often with a sweetish, sickening taste, and at times foul-smelling. Dyspnea is marked, constant, and is greatly increased by the slightest physical exertion. Hemoptysis is frequent, and when it occurs in any large amount is very serious and sometimes fatal. Tuberculous laryngitis, tuberculous enteritis, and tuberculous meningitis are of frequent occurrence, especially the first two. Often, patients can lie in but one position, usually on the relatively sound side, any change bringing on an exhausting fit of coughing. With the wretchedness incident to the high temperature, the cough, the sweats, the inability to eat, the frequent and painful complications, these unfortunates form one of the saddest sights in medicine, and many of them 
fully aware of the helplessness of their condition, welcomed death as a blessed deliverance. Modes of death in pulmonary tuberculosis. 1. Exhaustion, by far the most frequent. 2. Hemorrhage, usually only in advanced cases with large cavity formation. 3. Suffocation. Long involvement so great that the remaining breathing space is insufficient to maintain life. 4. Pulmonary edema. Sudden and often the result of unexpected heart failure. 5. Tuberculous laryngitis. Because of the relative starvation caused by the extreme pain on taking food and by the regurgitation of food through the nose. 6. Tuberculous enteritis because of the depleting effect of the prolonged diarrhea and because of inability to digest or assimilate what little food can be taken seven tuberculous meningitis because of the dullness stupor and coma that ensue making feeding almost impossible because of the practically absolute constipation and because of the spread of the tuberculous poison throughout the central nervous system Important complications of pulmonary tuberculosis. 1. Hemotysis. Hemorrhage from the lungs. Hemotysis is very frequent, occurring to a greater or less extent in about 60% of patients. The hemorrhage may be of any size, from a teaspoonful to two quarts. It may be preceded by the expectoration of blood-streaked sputum, but more often it occurs suddenly and unexpectedly. Hemotysis is caused by the eating away or erosion of the tuberculous process of one of the pulmonary vessels. If the vessel is small, the hemorrhage is usually slight. If the vessel is large, e.g. an artery running across a cavity, the hemorrhage may be so great as to prove immediately fatal. Hemorrhages may occur singly or several may follow one upon the other. At times, a hemorrhage may be directly traceable to some indiscretion, lifting, running, etc. More often, the exciting cause remains unknown. Symptoms. Frequently, there are none until the patient expectorates a mouthful of blood. At other times, a tickling sensation is felt under the sternum. A warm, salty taste appears in the mouth and blood is expectorated. The blood is usually bright red and frothy. It may come only on cough, which is apt to be very frequent. It may come so fast as to almost choke the patient, or, in extreme cases, it may pour from the patient's mouth like water from a faucet. Later, blood is almost invariably vomited, as all is never expectorated, and some always trickles down the esophagus into the stomach. After a fair-sized hemorrhage, patients almost always run a higher temperature for a few days, due to the absorption of the blood that has remained in the lung. Dangers of hemorrhage A. Loss of blood B. Aspiration pneumonia C. Dissemination of tuberculous process But a small percentage of patients that bleed actually die from loss of blood. Occasionally, a bronchopneumonia sets in usually of tuberculous origin, from which recovery is rather the rule than the exception. If, as a result of hemorrhage, 
as not infrequently happens, a spread occurs in the area of disease in the lung. Its extent and character will determine the fate of the patient. 2. Tuberculous laryngitis. When we consider that every bit of germ-laden sputum that is expectorated passes through the larynx, the wonder is that cases of tuberculous laryngitis are not more frequent. The complication is, however, a very common occurrence. The first symptoms may be any of the following. A. Weakness and rapid fatigue of the voice. B. Hoarseness in varying degree. C. Pain in the throat, usually on swallowing. The amount of hoarseness and pain depend upon the extent of the process and also upon the particular part of the larynx involved. Thus, a very slight involvement of the vocal cords will cause marked hoarseness and sometimes complete aphonia, while far greater involvement of other structures of the larynx will affect the voice slightly, if at all. Where the epiglottis is involved, there is very great pain on swallowing food, and food or fluid taken not infrequently regurgitates through the nose. At times, the pain radiates to the ears. In advanced cases, an enormous quantity of mucus is secreted, which has to be expectorated almost constantly, this serving to greatly exhaust the patient. In certain types of laryngeal tuberculosis, the pain on trying to swallow food is so great that the patient literally prefers to starve to death. 3. Intestinal tuberculosis, tuberculous enteritis. This condition may be primary, i.e., the beginning of active tuberculosis in the affected individual. Usually, however, it is secondary to advanced pulmonary disease. It is not an uncommon complication and is very serious indeed, practically all cases going steadily downhill. Ulceration occurs in the large and small intestine. Hemorrhage from the ulcers may occur, though this is rare as compared with hemorrhage from typhoid ulcers, because of the nature of the tuberculous process, which tends to block up and shut off the blood supply from the invaded area. Tuberculous ulcers have their long axis around the intestine, in contrast to typhoid ulcers, whose long axis runs lengthwise to the intestine. The main symptom of intestinal tuberculosis is an obstinate, intractable, painful diarrhea, sometimes alternating with periods of constipation, the stools numbering from four to twelve per day, and having a rather characteristic and extremely offensive odor. With this diarrhea there is profuse gas formation, almost constant abdominal pain, a distaste for food, and marked and progressive emaciation. Death usually occurs from exhaustion. 4. Tuberculous meningitis. This complication, though not as common in adults as the three preceding ones, is not infrequently met with. It is extremely fatal, many authorities placing the mortality at 100%. There are no absolutely characteristic symptoms of tuberculous meningitis that serve to differentiate it from any other meningitis, save the examination of the spinal fluid. See section on lumbar puncture in chapter on epidemic cerebrospinal meningitis. 
and the finding therein of tubercle bacilli when however a tuberculous patient presents the three following symptoms the existence of a tuberculous meningitis becomes practically a certainty a headache marked persistent becoming gradually worse resistant to all manner of treatment b vomiting constant not associated with the taking of food c constipation marked and growing progressively worse short of absolute intestinal obstruction there is no more marked constipation than that found in tuberculous meningitis in addition there are present symptoms of meningitis in general at first those of cerebral irritation and later those of cerebral depression see chapter on epidemic cerebrospinal meningitis patients die from exhaustion starvation from absorption of toxins from the bowels and from the spread of the tuberculous process throughout the central nervous system prophylaxis the prevention of tuberculosis is the cornerstone upon which is erected the hope for the future eradication of the disease prophylaxis may be divided into four classes one national two state three municipal four individual national and state prophylaxis do not come within the scope of these lectures municipal prophylaxis also will not be considered in detail but the following list will serve to show the different paths by which control and prevention of the disease is being sought a report to the local board of health of all cases of tuberculosis b tuberculosis clinics c tuberculosis classes d day camps for the tuberculous e night camps for the tuberculous f sanatoria one for incipient cases two for advanced cases g public lectures free of charge h public exhibits free of charge i posters illustrating preventive measures j instruction leaflets widely circulated free of charge k district tuberculosis nurses to visit the homes of the tuberculous poor free of charge l providing free of charge the few necessaries to make the tuberculous individual no longer a source of danger and to enable him to take rational care of himself sputum cup thermometers disinfectants etc individual prophylaxis this subdivision will be discussed more in detail as the nurse must see that the necessary precautions are scrupulously carried out both for her own protection and for that of the members of the family of her patient a care of the sputum it is probable that at the end of fifty years if all sputum were destroyed there would be no tuberculosis for the germ-laden sputum is by far the most important agency in spreading the disease every patient having sputum whether bacilli have been found in it or not should possess a sputum box and invariably expectorate in that box the best box is one consisting of a tin holder into which 
paper fillers are fitted. Every 24 hours, the filler, whether full or not, is removed from the holder and burned with its contents. Very finicky patients will not, and very weak patients often cannot, use a sputum box. For such patients, the nurse should provide small squares of cheesecloth, gauze, or tissue paper into which the sputum can be expectorated. An ordinary paper bag pinned to the sheet within easy reach of the patient serves as a receptacle for these cloths, and every 12 hours the bag and its contents should be burned. B. Covering the mouth when coughing. The nurse should provide a liberal number of gauze or cheesecloth squares for this purpose, as it has been shown that in the act of coughing, minute particles of sputum containing bacilli may be expectorated. A nurse should insist upon the patient's observing this rule, which is the one above all others that even conscientious patients are prone to neglect. C separate dishes and table utensils the patient should use separate dishes from the rest of the family it is well for the nurse to suggest that these dishes be of a different pattern silverware knives forks and spoons napkins and tray cloths should also not be mixed with the families paper napkins are desirable as they can be burnt d frequent hand washing the patient should wash the hands frequently especially before and after meals, and should repeatedly rinse the mouth with some mildly antiseptic mouthwash, such as Dobel's solution. C. Bedclothing and bed linen. These should be dealt with separately from the family washing and should be thoroughly boiled. F. Care of thermometers, etc. All thermometers should be kept in a bichloride 1 to 1,000 or carbolic 5% solution and washed with water before being given to the patient rectal tubes enema nozzles etc should be sterilized after use by boiling g the nurse's care of herself the nurse should insist upon a reasonable amount of time off duty should take a daily brisk walk of at least half an hour should pay scrupulous attention to the care of her hands and mouth and should never use any article that has been used by the patient. By rigid adherence to the few simple rules here given, the patient will prove absolutely no danger to the household in which he lives, and the nurse will be doing, in addition to her professional duty, an educational work in the family and in the community in which she is called upon to practice. Treatment The treatment of tuberculosis may be divided into four groups. 1. Hygienic dietetic treatment, by far the most important. 2. Specific treatment, i.e. tuberculin. 3. Treatment by the induction of artificial pneumothorax, both in conjunction with 1. 4. Symptomatic treatment, hygienic dietetic treatment. This is based on three equally important factors. X. Rest y fresh air z food the nurse will so rarely be called upon to care for the case that is truly ambulant that it is not necessary to go into the details of the regime a few general rules will merely be laid down 
without comment. 1. Rest at first, until exercise is ordered. 2. Day spent on porch in reclining chair. 3. Temperature and pulse taken four times daily and oftener at first. 4. Three full meals per day, at the usual hours, supplemented by such additional nourishment as ordered. 5. Exercise when ordered, and in the amount prescribed. 6. Sleep on porch or in room with all windows open. 7. In bed not later than 10 p.m. 8. Drugs only for combating individual symptoms. 9. No alcohol in any form. Bed cases. The vast majority of cases of pulmonary tuberculosis employing a trained nurse are bed cases at the time of the nurse's arrival. As a typical example will be selected a moderately advanced case running a maximum daily temperature between 101 and 102 degrees with other symptoms in proportion. 1. General management. If the patient has a sleeping porch, it will, of course, be used. See that the bed is in a protected portion of the porch, and that the patient is not liable to be wet by a driving rain. If necessary, ask for an awning or a canvas shield for the exposed end of the porch. If there is no sleeping porch available, the room must be as freely open to the air as possible. Cold, rain, etc. are no contraindications to this, it being, of course, understood that the patient is to be, at all times, warm and comfortable. The head of the bed should not be in a corner where there is air stagnation, nor between two windows where a direct draught blows on the patient, but well out in the body of the room where air circulates freely. Sacrifice the looks of the room to the welfare of the patient. In winter, the nurse must be sure to provide herself with warm clothes, both under and outer garments, in order that she, too, will be comfortable in cold weather. The writer has known of several nurses rendered seriously ill by the combination of insufficient clothing and devotion to their patients. The nurse owes her services to her patient, but she owes her health to herself. It is her most precious asset. Save in conditions of great weakness or after hemorrhage, the bedpan is usually not necessary. If the bathroom is convenient, it can be used, or else recourse can be had to a commode. Care must be taken not to expose the patient in cold weather. If a porch is used, he must be rolled into the room for the morning toilet, which differs in no way from that of any case of febrile disease, bath, rub, etc., if the patient is in a room, it must be warm before any work is undertaken with the patient. This is excessively important and often neglected. 2. Food Tuberculosis being a wasting disease, food is excessively important. The normal caloric needs of the body must be exceeded, for oxidation of foodstuffs and of tissues is going on more rapidly than in the normal individual. There are no absolute rules for diet in tuberculosis. There is no one diet in tuberculosis. Generally speaking, the caloric needs of the patient will be supplied by three square meals a day and little more, the little more coming in the form usually of 
eggs and milk to be taken as prescribed by the physician certain general principles of diet will be mentioned the application of accurate caloric feeding is rarely practiced save in an institution under the supervision of a dietitian assisted by several nurses in the ordinary case encountered in private nursing a general estimate of the caloric value of food taken will be made and feeding directed upon that as a basis food for the tuberculous should be well prepared cleanly promptly and attractively served the ordinary articles of diet are satisfactory meat should not as a rule be eaten more than once a day it is not wise to increase too greatly the proteid intake for the sake of gaining weight carbohydrates and fat should be increased more than the nitrogenous food extra nourishment is usually indicated in the majority of cases the simplest way to give it is in the form of milk and eggs fortunately the days of tremendous overfeeding are past and now the object is to give just as much as the stomach will tolerate but no more many tuberculous patients especially those running some temperature have poor appetites and a considerable part of the nurse's duty will be to try and make these patients eat a few suggestions on the preparation and serving of food for the sick in the chapter on foods and nutrition apply particularly well to tuberculosis many patients announce at once i cannot take milk and eggs as a matter of fact this usually means i dislike milk and eggs and i don't want to take them there are some patients that really cannot take milk and eggs every attempt to do so causing marked symptoms of indigestion these patients are greatly handicapped but fortunately their number is small as a rule by coaxing by disguising the taste of the milk with very little tea or coffee or beating up the egg in the milk and adding a little vanilla by having milk and egg ice cold by beginning with the white of the egg and not adding the yolk until later or by many other little subterfuges the patient if really in earnest and cooperative can manage to take eggs and milk too much care and attention cannot be expended by the nurse on the patient's food the tripod upon which rests the treatment of tuberculosis is rest fresh air food rest can be obtained fresh air is within the reach of all but food not only must be well selected but well cooked and served in such a manner as to overcome aversion on the part of a stomach that instinctively revolts at the thought of a meal three bowels the care of the bowels is extremely important save in those cases of tuberculous enteritis or during some transitory intestinal derangement constipation is the rule it is very natural that this should be so for the patient is put to bed allowed no exercise whatsoever and fed very liberally many of the cases of constipation clear up in a marked degree when the patient is able to take thirty minutes exercise laxatives must be resorted to in the majority of cases as a general rule it can be stated that it is better for the patient to have two bowel movements daily than to go one day without a thorough evacuation four cough there is no symptom more wearing and exhausting than cough and many bed patients are actually greatly over exercising 
as a result of the exertions incident to the cough. There are, generally speaking, two kinds of cough in pulmonary tuberculosis. 1. Dry, hacking, bringing up no sputum. This cough, like that in the beginning of lobar pneumonia, is never helpful, always troublesome, sometimes dangerous, and should be discouraged. About 75% of it can be controlled by the will. The nurse should keep this before the patient, and gradually she will see the fruits of her suggestion in lessened hacking, more rest, and increasing strength. At times, cold cloths or an ice bag to the throat is of great value in relieving the dry, harassing cough. Almost invariably, some drugs are necessary to help the cough, as opium derivative, like codeine or heroin, being usually the cornerstone of the prescription. 2. Loose, productive cough, bringing up sputum. This type of cough is beneficial. It is nature's method of drainage and should not be interfered with. 5. Temperature. Rest in bed is the best treatment for fever. Moderate temperatures up to 103 degrees rarely require any active treatment other than bed rest. With higher temperatures, cold, in the form of the ice cap, gives relief, as do sponges with alcohol and water. With very high fever, or in patients that feel very badly indeed, with a moderate amount of temperature, antipyretics are used. 6. Night Sweats As night sweats are simply a symptom of toxemia, that which reduces the toxemia will also cause the disappearance of the sweats. Rest in bed is the best treatment for night sweats, as it removes, or at any rate, lessens the cause. Drugs are also of value for night sweats, several being used, the most reliable being atropine and camphoric acid. Alcohol and vinegar rubs at night are also sometimes of benefit. 7. Insomnia. Often very intractable. The success of its management depends almost entirely upon the underlying cause. If cough is the cause, its alleviation will be of great benefit, for the sleeplessness, apparently without cause, that so often troubles tuberculous patients, but little is to be done. The condition is probably an expression of toxemia, and rest in bed is the best treatment. Practically all physicians hesitate to give hypnotics in these cases because of the great dependence so soon placed upon them, but often it is absolutely necessary to employ them for a short while. 8. Vomiting. There are two kinds of vomiting seen in tuberculosis. 1. Vomiting due to local stomach conditions. The digestive system is then at fault and treatment must be directed toward the correction of whatever is out of gear. 2. Vomiting due to coughing and of purely mechanical origin, there being no disturbance whatsoever in the gastrointestinal tract. This vomiting is particularly marked during or after breakfast. The warm food and coffee taken at breakfast serve to loosen the secretions in the lungs. These cause cough in order that expectoration may take place. The diaphragm pressing down with each cough upon the recently filled stomach 
finally causes a gastric contraction, which results in vomiting. These cases can often be very well dealt with by giving the patient a glass of hot water on awakening. The water is to be sipped slowly. It acts as a loosener to the secretions, and coughing and expectoration take place before breakfast, and on an empty rather than on a full stomach. Management of Important Complications 1. Hemorrhage The following facts must be plainly understood with regard to pulmonary hemorrhage. 1. Hemorrhages are largely self-limited. 2. No treatment by drugs for rapidly stopping hemorrhage is of much avail unless instituted within five minutes after bleeding has begun. 3. Certain symptoms that make for more free bleeding can be satisfactorily controlled by drugs. 4. The mental attitude of the patient during a hemorrhage is as important as anything connected with the treatment of the condition. 5. The attitude of the nurse in an emergency such as hemorrhage will largely determine the attitude of the patient. The patient, with very few exceptions, is badly frightened. The nurse must keep her head, be calm, take charge of things, and convey the impression that bleeding is nothing over which to be alarmed. Her place is with her patient, not calling up a half a dozen telephone numbers in vain attempts to locate the physician. That important duty should be delegated to someone else. That we have no specific for pulmonary hemorrhage is shown by the fact that almost every drug in the pharmacopoeia has been used at some time or other. This, too, is a strong argument in favor of the self-limiting nature of pulmonary hemorrhage. All the drugs used cannot be mentioned. A brief statement of the general management of hemotysis and a few words concerning some of the most used methods will suffice. The patient that is bleeding should at once be put to bed, if not already there. One pillow under the head, some authorities preferring an almost erect position. Small amounts of salt and cracked ice by mouth. The patient should not be allowed to raise himself on his elbow to expectorate into the sputum cup. Sputum should be received into cloths, gauze, towels, anything that is at hand, and as far as possible the position of the patient should not be disturbed. As to drug treatment, morphia is very often and very freely given, sometimes too freely. Morphia is, of course, the great drug for allaying intense nervousness and uncontrollable cough, and in a large percentage of cases will be indicated and required. For frequent distressing cough, codeine acts very well, as does heroin, both being given hypodermically. The drug that has given the author the best results in the control of bleeding is atropine, 133rd to 125th grain hypodermically. The dose is large, but the effect is to reduce deep blood pressure by the dilation of the superficial vessels all over the body. The results are prompt, if administered at once upon the appearance of free bleeding. An amyl nitrite pearl is 
frequently given the patient while the hypodermic is being prepared. Emetin hypodermically is now frequently employed, as is also pituitrin. The calcium salts are frequently used in hemorrhage cases because of their action in increasing the coagulability of the blood. The chloride and lactate of calcium are the salts employed. In cases of multiple hemorrhages or prolonged oozing, horse serum, ergot, adrenaline, coagulose, and thromboplastin are among the agents that have been advised. The writer has seen good results from the administration of coagulose. After a hemorrhage, the patient should be kept on his back in bed until the sputum is again clear. For several days after active bleeding, there is sure to be red sputum, and the nurse must reassure the patient that this does not signify continuous or renewal of bleeding. For 24 hours after a smart hemorrhage, nourishment should be liquid, and nothing hot should be given until the sputum is again clear. Attention must be given to keeping the bowels well open by laxatives or enemata. 2. Pleurisy. This subject is dealt with in the chapter on pleurisy, dry and with effusion, and therefore will not be discussed here. 3. Tuberculous laryngitis. The actual treatment of tuberculous laryngitis falls outside the province of the nurse. There are a few things, however, that she can do for patients with this complication. A. Spraying the throat. Sprays or powders, both for treatment and as anesthetics, are often prescribed and rarely satisfactorily administered. A spray or powder improperly given is worse than no spray at all. Hence, the following directions for spraying the larynx are given. 1. Turn adjustable tip of atomizer downward until it makes an angle just short of a right angle. 2. Let patient sit upright facing a good light, either natural or artificial. 3. Let patient pull out tongue as far as possible with a piece of gauze and hold it thus. This raises and immobilizes the larynx. 4. Quickly insert barrel of atomizer into mouth, holding it in the median line and having the tip about one quarter inch from the posterior pharyngeal wall. 5. Tell the patient to take a long, slow breath and during that breath, press bulb of atomizer vigorously three or four times. As soon as patient begins to gag, withdraw atomizer, as its contents can no longer reach their goal. 7. Repeat this three or four times at the specified hour at which the spray is used. 8. For the insufflation of powders, the procedure is exactly the same, save that two good puffs of the powder are usually enough for one dose. B. Cold to the throat. This should be applied either by cold cloths constantly changed, or by means of the throat ice bag which adapts itself to the shape of the neck. 
the ordinary ice bag or ice cap is useless for this purpose. C. Fly blisters, cantharides plasters, are often used on the sides of the neck over the point of maximum laryngeal pain. D. Silence. If talking is prohibited, the nurse must see that silence is enforced. She must have paper and pencil at hand for the patient to write upon, and she must never answer any spoken question. 4. Tuberculous enteritis. Unfortunately, there is very little to be done for this distressing condition, and it is usually one of the terminal phases of pulmonary tuberculosis. Opium, in some form, usually laudanum, must be prescribed to check diarrhea and to lessen pain. 5. Tuberculous meningitis. The treatment of this complication is purely symptomatic. At times, much relief can be obtained by frequent lumbar punctures, which by lessening pressure in the spinal canal and in the ventricles of the brain often causes great relief in symptoms, this relief being, unfortunately, only temporary. Tuberculin Treatment It is not intended in these lectures to touch upon the question of treatment with tuberculin for that rests wholly within the province of the physician. The following statements can be made, however. 1. Tuberculin in any substance derived directly or indirectly from the tubercle bacillus and used therapeutically. 2. There are over 50 varieties of tuberculin. 3. The object of treatment with any tuberculin is to stimulate the body to the greater production of productive substances, antibodies, against the tubercle bacillus and its toxins, i.e., the bringing about of an active immunity in tuberculosis. 4. There is no doubt that in certain cases tuberculin can be of inestimable value. 5. There is no doubt that in the past tuberculin has been held up as a poison which it was criminal to use and has been given credit for working miracles. Both extreme positions are unjustifiable. Treatment by the induction of artificial pneumothorax. This mode of treatment, first devised by Forlanini of the University of Pavia, Italy, in 1882, merits a short consideration. The object of artificial pneumothorax is to collapse and immobilize the affected lung by means of an air splint, and as a result of this collapse and immobilization to further healing and scar formation by giving absolute rest to the diseased organ. In the small operation, which corresponds very much to tapping the chest for fluid, necessary for the induction of artificial pneumothorax, a blunt hollow needle is inserted between the ribs until its point is between the two pleural layers, this being indicated by certain characteristic fluctuations of a column of water in a U-tube, known as a manometer, which is connected by a tube with a needle in the chest. The point of the needle being in the desired position, 
the manometer is turned off and nitrogen gas or sterile air allowed to flow in gas spreads of course in the direction of least resistance toward the outside are the ribs and the firm intercostal muscles forming an unyielding wall toward the inside is the soft spongy lung which gives way and shrinks much as does a sponge when squeezed gradually after several injections the lung is completely collapsed the entire pleural cavity being filled with gas when successful the collapse of the diseased lung causes a prompt diminution in all symptoms a lessening of fever cough sputum a return of strength and well-being that in some cases is little short of miraculous collapse is maintained for from six months to three years and at the end of that time healing having taken place no more gas is given and the lung slowly re-expands two factors are necessary for the induction of artificial pneumothorax one one sound or almost sound lung in order that it will unaided be able to carry on the task of respiration two absence or scarcity of pleural adhesions if adhesions between the two pleural layers are so dense that they will not give way under pressure from the gas no collapse can be obtained and the procedure cannot be used failure occurs in about thirty three per cent of all attempts thus taking the treatment of pulmonary tuberculosis and very briefly summarizing it the following scheme can be presented one hygienic dietetic treatment applicable to every case based essentially on a rest b fresh air c food two treatment with tuberculin applicable to a moderate number of cases three treatment by means of artificial pneumothorax applicable to a very small percentage of cases about five per cent four symptomatic treatment very important and in conjunction with number one applicable to every case end of chapter twenty two